today on Ag News Daily. It's going to take time. It's, it's still as much as it's getting talked about in, in the agriculture community and people are seeing it as a, a way to actually do something on a broader scale. And it, it still hasn't quite got there yet. And it takes time for farmers to, to really see that the payments are real. Good afternoon and happy Friday at last from the Ag News Daily podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. I'm so excited that it's finally the weekend, although I'm probably just going to be doing homework and preparing for finals this weekend. So honestly, not too much of a break, really. Well, I will be out. uh, I won't be helping with planting. I'll just be riding along during planting this weekend. But I tell you what, it's been pretty dull here at work for me just because so many folks are out planting. Our phones have been quiet. The markets have not been quiet, but sure is made for a dull Friday afternoon for me. Yeah, honestly, been a little bit of a dull day for me too, just doing some presentations for school and looking at what the newswires had in store for us today. And one of the headlines that I was reading earlier today is talking about the ag industry pressuring the Department of Transportation for intervention over export carriers. The U.S. ag industry is really pressing down on the Department of Transportation because they're wanting them to go ahead and intervene in foreign-owned carriers that won't export ag products. Bob Sinner with SB&B Foods, a company that exports soybeans to Asian manufacturers, says the backlog could cost the ag industry billions of dollars since exporters aren't able to fill overseas contracts. He said that this issue has not changed. Exporters are way behind on their shipments. Food manufacturers have had to stop in some cases because they don't have any inventory. Sinner's company, plus several others, including the Agriculture Transportation Coalition, sent a letter to Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Buddha judge. Buddha judge. Okay. I was hoping that you would know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Secretary Pete Buttigieg asking the department to use its authority to help solve the problem. He tells Brownfield Ag News that one reason exports aren't being filled is because ocean carriers find a better profit across the sea. He says the issue, he says the issues started in October and have not yet been fixed. There's been no resolution, and hopefully this letter might push the Department of Transportation to find some kind of solution. But the letter says if exporters don't fill overseas contracts, the industry could lose $1.5 billion. Yes, that's B with a billion, Delaney. That is certainly a lot of money, Ashton. And another thing the industry could lose money out on this year is weather-related. We could see... Crops impacted pretty heavily this year, although it's still a little too soon to tell. But the latest U.S. drought monitor pegs about 82% of the nation's spring wheat crop in a drought, including 85% of North Dakota's. We were talking to, or I shouldn't say we, some of my sales reps here at Trader PhD were talking to some North Dakota and South Dakota farmers earlier today, and they messaged me and let me know. A lot of folks in especially North Dakota are dealing with a lot of really dry temperatures, have not been able to get in and get the crop planted because it's quite frankly too dusty to plant into. But so far we're seeing about 22% of the nation's corn, excuse me, corn crop experiencing drought. 
And about 38% of North Dakota's corn crop is located in an extreme drought area. And then on the soybean side of things, about 19% of the nation's soybeans are experiencing drought with 54% of North Dakota's soybean crop experiencing extreme drought. So North Dakota is certainly getting hit the hardest, but really there is drought all over, uh, I would say three quarters of the United States at this point, you look down into, you know, Florida, Missouri, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, those parts still don't really have any drought on the monitor, but pretty much everywhere else around the United States really does. It's very unfortunate that we're in that situation, Delaney. I mean, Lubbock, we got a little bit of rain, like I said yesterday, and there were still a few puddles on the ground earlier this morning, but it is just so dry here that I guarantee that I'll see a dust storm, whether it's today or any time for the rest of the weekend. So honestly, my heart kind of goes out to not even just those farmers, but the people that just kind of have to deal with this dry, dusty, just gross weather. Mm -hmm. It certainly is gross. Gross. Exactly. Just gross. I don't know if Eric Snodgrass would really just, you know, say gross and use the terms we're using, but Hey, I mean, I'm an amateur when it comes to talking about weather. Yeah, so well, that's okay. <laughs> well, Delaney, moving right along here, I just have one more story to share today. And I found it quite interesting. Russia has produced the world's first batch of COVID-19 vaccines for animals. Yes, I said animals, not for people. I mean, we already have COVID vaccines for people, but they, Russia being they, has produced 17,000 doses of COVID vaccines for animals, according to its agricultural regulator earlier today. Russia registered Carnivac Cove in March after tests showed that it generated antibodies against COVID-19 in dogs, cats, foxes, and mink. I remember reading a couple stories about COVID in cats and in mink. I can't remember if I had heard anything about dogs and foxes, but it mm -hmm. sounds like it's affecting them as well. But the first batch will be supplied to several regions of Russia. It said that companies from Germany, Greece, Poland, Austria, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Malaysia, Thailand, South Korea, Lebanon, Iran, and Argentina had expressed interest in purchasing vaccines. So it sounds like it's a pretty popular idea. A lot of countries are wanting to get in on this. And the World Health Organization has voiced concern over the risk of transmission of the virus between humans and animals. Like I said, we have discussed a couple of stories about it being transmitted zoonotically. And the Russian regulator has said the vaccine would be able to protect vulnerable species and fraught viral mutations. So hopefully we'll see if this works. I haven't heard anything about um, really the tests or how it's working or how it's going to be administered. But I mean, 17,000 doses, that's quite a lot. Yeah, I know that you can, in fact, also push it out or have your dogs vaccinated for COVID. I believe it's likely a different strain because I think the current strain of COVID is not uh, interspecies. But I know for a fact my dog has had the COVID shot because I remember looking at his papers one time thinking, oh, I didn't know that COVID was a, or coronavirus, I should say, was an animal-related disease. You know, I want to say, Delaney, when everything first started happening with the coronavirus pandemic, that people were also saying that they vaccinated their cattle for mm -hmm. you know, some yeah. strain of coronavirus. So honestly, I mean, like you said, different strain, different, you know, type, but still very interesting. 
Mm-hmm. It certainly is. Well, Ashton, I've got a little bit of a follow-up story here to what Dawson reported on the other day dealing with a lawsuit. Uh, five white farmers are claiming the $4 billion debt forgiveness program being implemented right now by the USDA is unconstitutional and have officially filed a lawsuit in federal record, excuse me, federal court in Wisconsin. We're talking about the debt forgiveness plan that offers 120% relief for direct and guaranteed loans held by those quote unquote socially disadvantaged farmers. And this has definitely ticked off a lot of different farmers. I know I've seen a lot of folks on Twitter sharing uh, various concerns about the way that USDA set this program up. And uh, I just saw also another farmer in Calum. I'm not going to pronounce this right. Calumet County, I think maybe is how you pronounce it, um, is suing over similar concerns or suing the federal government really over over uh, similar concerns. And so the group is alleging that they can't participate in COVID-19 loan forgiveness programs because of the color of their skin. They said that white farmers aren't eligible and that is a violation of their constitutional rights, according to the lawsuit. And they said it was just out and out racist. And they don't really believe that there should be racism allowed in the federal government at any level, according to one of the farmers that is cited in this lawsuit. Interesting how this is all going to go about here. I'm not going to really take a position or share my opinions on this one. I just think it's a messy thing all the way around. I agree, Delaney. I think it's pretty messy. And honestly, Dawson and I were talking about it the other day about, you know, just kind of being surprised on how things are are playing out right now. And we'll just keep an eye out on it and see, you know, what the court says and all of that stuff, because I definitely think that it's an interesting topic for sure. I mean, we've been talking a lot about diversity and what the Biden administration is doing. So just gonna have to keep our eyes out on that development and see if honestly, any changes are are made because of these court cases. Yes, absolutely. And see if there are any changes that the USDA pushes forward because of these potential lawsuits. So I can't say that I'm really surprised by this. I feel like as a whole, we're becoming more litigious as a nation, unfortunately. Well, Delaney, I don't have anything else to share today. Hopefully you have some news to share in the market, though. I certainly do. And a quick note here before we talk markets. On Monday, we'll be talking markets with Darren Newsom. But on Monday, we also will have brand new limits set by the CME group. Those go into effect technically on Sunday night in the overnight session. And we will see corn futures now expand to their daily limit of 40 cents per bushel. Those go into effect on Monday. We'll see the new limits for soft red wheat and KC hard red winter wheat go to 45 cents. And soybeans daily limit will be pushed out to a dollar per bushel. Currently, they're sitting at 70 cents, but as of Monday, they will trade to a dollar. And they said, CME Group said that they are going to watch these new limits periodically here and review them every so often to make sure that the limits are uh, correct that they're allowing the markets to take their natural course. Uh, But it sounds like that's really the reason that they changed these limits is because we've seen such volatile markets lately and they want to allow the market to do what a market should do and put in some more 
expansion for commodity markets because we have seen such volatile markets lately. We saw fresh highs put in today in the May corn contract, and today was the first notice date for the May corn contract. Uh, I believe we also might have put in some fresh highs today in the soybean markets as well. We'll talk to Darren Newsom about that come Monday. But in the meantime, May corn today closed up 38 cents, closing today at 740. Beast new crop corn up 17 and a half to close at 563 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the May contract up 28 and a half cents today to close at 1571. The November up 21 cents to close at 1339 and three quarters. Wheat today higher as well with the Chicago May contract up five cents to close at 7.42 and a half. The July up five and three quarters to close at 7.34 and three quarters. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets, we had mixed trade today as the June live cattle contract up 52 and a half cents to close at 116.57 and a half. The August up $1.22 to close at 118.62 and a half. Now in feeders is where we had a little bit of the sell-off today with the May contract down $2.25 to close at $133.60. The August down $3.12 to close at $146.75. And in lean hogs, strength today with the May contract adding $1.40 to close at $110.12.5. The June up $3 to close at $109.72.5. And lastly, wrapping up our markets here with the class three dairy markets. May contract down two cents today to close at 1920. The June up 12 to close at 1987. Ashen, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation today for the 30 under 30 AgRad segment. Well, for today's 30 Under 30 segment, we are joined by the Vice President of Sustainability for Locus Agricultural Solutions, Keith Heidekorn, who is just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Keith, thanks so much for joining today. Certainly excited to talk about you and your background. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on today. So, Keith, the 30 Under 30 magazine talks a lot about sustainability and your role with Locus Ag Solutions and how you got into that role. But it doesn't talk a whole lot about your background before that. Did you grow up on a farm? Did you grow up around agriculture? Or was this something that you just kind of fell into? Yeah, it's a, a fair question. I I grew up right outside New York City. So I would say I, I did not grow up on a farm and grew up more in the suburbs and split time in the suburbs in New York City. So farming wasn't, I guess, in my DNA. I did, however, when I was in high school, work on a, a farm in the summer. So that, that kind of gave me my first uh, forte, I'd say, into farming and appreciation to agriculture. And but my, my true passion was sustainability, and that forged into mending with agriculture as well. So, Keith, since you didn't have a strong background in agriculture, how did you find yourself working for Locust Ag Solutions? How did you make your way there? Yeah, so so my background is uh, I have a environmental science undergrad and an environmental engineering master's degree, and I was working actually out in Los Angeles prior to moving to Cleveland, and I had connected with our chairman of our company through some mutual connections, and I was actually out in uh, Ohio for watching the NCAA wrestling championships a few years back as a spectator, just watching as a fan, and I. Uh, decided to stop by and actually meet our chairman in person. We hit it off. And before I knew it, he was convincing me to, to pick up and move from LA to Cleveland. And as one does, and I, uh, I jumped at the opportunity to be a part of something new and novel and 
So I somehow came over to Locust and then we have a family of companies, Locust, that we do all the stuff in biotech, not just in agriculture, but I soon gravitated to our agricultural business and working on sustainability issues there. Keith, what drove you or pulled you towards the agricultural and sustainability side of the business? And did you go to school for like something related to sustainability or technology? Yeah. So my, so my master's from, uh, was in environmental engineering. So I, I worked on a lot of sustainability issues there and uh, I got pulled in while I was at, at the university of Michigan on the Flint water crisis project and we actually doing research there. Uh, so, but I've done a lot of research and work in undergrad as well as my uh, consultant company uh, business that I was working for prior to uh, coming out here in sustainability. And so that, that's really my background in research into sustainability. And then, when I got to Locust, we saw that there was an opportunity that a couple of us had identified that uh, the whole soil carbon sequestration opportunity that really wasn't, it was still in the nascent stages. I you know it's been more in the academics prior, but now it's now it's at the, the front of a lot of people's minds. But at the time, about three and a half, four years ago, it really wasn't being talked about as it is now. And we saw an opportunity that our product and our offering to farmers, we can actually help do something good for farmers, but also do something good for the environment by working on soil carbon sequestration. Keith, I'm glad you brought up carbon sequestration because you were really one of the founding fathers, if you will, of the carbon sequestration program at Locust. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it's a, it was an interesting experience. I learned a lot through the process. Uh, I think as you're building something new, there's a lot of unknowns and every day is presented some new challenges that you're just trying to solve a problem and move on to the next problem to solve and keep iterating from there and kind of fits into my engineering background and just problem solving every single moment. But it was fun. It was interesting. We, when we first started doing the soil sampling, we start, first started doing investigations in this. We didn't really know fully what we were doing. We were following some scientific research we'd read. We had talked to professors like Dr. Rotan Law at Ohio State and kind of got a idea from there. And then I think as we brought more people that onto our, our team, not just in the ag side, but also who have uh, science backgrounds like myself who can collaborate in a way that we really were able to figure out ways and to really bring this to fruition. Now we were lucky enough that we were able to help one of the first growers actually get carbon credits out in Iowa. It was a long journey. <laughs> Keith, I think carbon credits and carbon sequestration is something that this administration definitely has spent a lot of time focusing on here for agriculture. What do you think that they're, what, do you have any insight, I guess, into what you think they're going to be able to do and what kind of adoption we see as far as farmers getting into this space, you know, here in the next couple of years? Is it going to be a lot of folks looking into carbon sequestration or do you think it's going to be slow to adopt this type of uh, technology? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think with the Growing Climate Solutions Act and the following ones that they've been able to build on through the current administration, I think there's definitely much more interest into it. I think uh, it's going to take time. It's, it's still, as much as it's getting talked about in, in the agriculture community and people are seeing it as a, a way to actually do something on a broader scale and to uh, it, it still hasn't quite got there yet. And it takes time for farmers to to really see that the payments are real, pay, that it's consistent. And this isn't something that's going to be a flash in the pan. I think it's like anything in any new products, any new 
technology just takes time for the, you have the innovators, the early adopters, and then slowly as those people start to become very comfortable with it, they start telling their friends, they start getting the word out and more and more people start to get involved. I, I think it'll be in the next few years. We'll, we'll see uh, <laughs> a lot more people involved in the process. It's still people in their early innings. And Keith, in the coming years, you know, we're expecting to see more of a boom surrounding sustainability. I mean, that's really a kind of buzzword at the moment. But within the next couple of years for yourself, where do you see, you know, yourself going, whether it's in the Locust Company or, you know, further efforts in increasing sustainability in agriculture? How do you think you're going to play a key role in that? Yeah, (laughs) The future, yeah, we'll see what happens in the future. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of unknown there, but uh, sustainability and ESG are definitely core to my values and something I want to keep pushing forward. And you're right, it's it's a buzzword right now. It's something that is uh, either in the investment community, ESG, and agriculture communities, this sustainability, ESG. And I think there's a lot of good things that are going to come out of it right now, just it's making sure that whatever I do or whatever we end up doing in the future at Locust, we it's making sure that science-based, there's no greenwashing behind it. There's data-driven and it's trying to figure out solutions, just like going back to my engineering days that are good for people that work for them, but also good for the environment because I think solutions that are too one-sided if they just can cause issues. And I, I think it's, it's really... <laughs> to be to be honest, I don't know what the next five years or what the future lies, but I know I'm going to be doing something in sustainability and ESG to to make a difference. And one of those things right now is that we're working on at Locust is is trying to reduce methane emissions from cattle. Uh, it's a big issue that doesn't really have a solution. And currently, we are still in the university testing stage, and we see a lot of promise in our data sets. And we're hoping that that will. That will lead to something that's good for farmers as well as can make an immediate impact on climate change. Keith, I'm I'm curious to learn a little bit more about that as far as Locus's future plans. Tell us a little bit more about what they've got in store as well as what you guys are intending to do. How are you going to cut down methane emissions here? Yeah, so, so methane emissions from cattle, it's it's a people usually hear about it from a <laughs> the the cows farting and stuff like that and it's get, there's humor behind it and people there's a lot of different takes that have come out of it but methane emissions from cattle actually represent a significant amount of climate change i think it's about three to four percent in the u.s come from methane emissions from cattle and the the thing about it though which is which gravitated me towards it was that methane emissions are just a loss of energy it's for the cattle it's not it's the cattle not being efficient as it can be so that carbon, that methane that's being burped out or farted out in this case, uh, is just a loss of energy. So we were looking at it from a solution. Can we create more energy for that cattle instead of, so it goes to things like growing, getting bigger, producing more milk. And by doing that and helping the farmers and having that mindset of, okay, how do we help the producers, but also by helping the producers, we're actually helping fight climate change at the same time by reducing that methane going the atmosphere. So we've seen early results uh, at our universities about up to about 78%. And sometimes we're seeing data that's coming up a little higher that we're, we're still working on, but we see this as a really uh, a novel solution that can, can be a win-win for everyone. 
Well, Keith, it has been a joy not only to get to know you a little bit more, but talk more about sustainability. Like I said, it's a really big buzzword right now. And I think that there are a lot of different questions that we can kind of go through. But unfortunately, we don't have the time to kind of dissect all of that because it is such a vast topic. But Keith, thank you so much for coming on today. And congratulations for being a part of the 30 Under 30 class. Thank you for, for talking to me and hearing a little bit about my, my story, my background, and it was, it was a real pleasure. Thanks again there to Keith for coming on and talking to us. I mean, we just keep talking to some really, really awesome people. I mean, Delaney, you should really be proud of yourself for being a part of the 30 Under 30 class. Well, thank you, Ashton. It is a still a very nice honor to have, but I got to say, I listened to the podcast today that you and Nat Dawson put together the other day. I think you should be pretty proud of yourself for reading through markets for your first time. Well, thank you. It did take a little bit of time. People didn't get to see the rough edits of that. We might have to do a blooper reel or something. So they'd really just understand the gravity of the situation because I was so nervous about that. Poor Dawson had to sit through it. <laughs> well, I think you guys both did fantastic. Well, that's so good to hear. We'll have to let Dawson know your kind words as well. But folks, if you want to tune in to next week as we head into a, a new week, a new day for, for markets on Monday, you'll have to do so at agnewsdaily.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. But with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.